Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Acute ischemic stroke is a challenging therapeutic issue we revisit from time to time on this podcast. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director with the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Today, I'm joined by Dr. James Braun, Neurosciences Pharmacy Clinical Specialist at SSM Health St. Louis University Hospital, and my Vizient colleague, Dr. Kyle Holting, Senior Clinical Manager of Drug Information. We'll discuss the nuances of this therapeutic area and share recent work from an expert panel led by Vizient on the matter in the first of this two-part series. Welcome, both of you. Hello, Gretchen. Thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. I'm very excited to talk about Tenectoplace. And thanks for having me back, Gretchen. Our listeners know Kyle from our recent EBM episode. James, tell me a little bit about your background. I'm the Neurosciences Pharmacy Clinical Specialist at SSM Health St. Louis University Hospital. Completed my doctorate at St. Louis College of Pharmacy in St. Louis, Missouri back in 2014. And then completed my PGY-1 and my PGY-2 specializing in critical care at SSM Health St. Louis University Hospital. After which I accepted a position with neurocritical care anesthesia critical care teams. And I've been in that role now for going on six years. I also serve as the pharmacy representative on the SSM Health System Neurosciences Steering Committee, and I'm a core member of the St. Louis University Sour Stroke Institute. How is your role tied to the treatment of stroke patients? In my role as the neurosciences specialist, I champion 24-hour pharmacy response to code strokes. Now I serve as the training coordinator for that pharmacy response team. I currently also act as the chief pharmacy daytime responder to code strokes, assisting in collection of patient info, review of thrombolytic use criteria, and then preparation of thrombolytic for administration. My relationship with Tenectoplace, how I got into this position, I've been following the literature for years and talking about it here and there as I found opportunities, but following the most recent Extend IA TNK Part 2 trial publication, started to feel stronger that it was ready for prime time and in serious consideration as an alternative to Altaplace. From there, I started engaging colleagues throughout the system, found some like-minded neurologists up in Wisconsin who were independently starting to dig into this idea about using Tenectoplace, one of which had come from an institution that was already using Tenectoplace for stroke. We connected and started to collaborate on how we would bring this to a wider system audience. And these neurologists really helped champion the idea of making the formulary switch. Our health system then started the changeover process in June of last year, 2021. And I personally oversaw the St. Louis Regional Conversion Work Group in the lead up to our go live, which was November of 2021. Well, I'm really interested in getting into more of the details on this. Kyle, our listeners are familiar with this issue from a previous podcast, which we linked to in the show notes, but share why it's so important and tell us a little bit about the history. Sure. The incidence of new and recurrent strokes in the U.S. is estimated at 795,000 individuals each year, which accounts for roughly 146,000 deaths. Strokes are broadly categorized as ischemic or hemorrhagic, ischemics accounting for 87% of all strokes, whereas intracranial and subarachnoid hemorrhages account for 10% and 3% respectively. Early recognition and interventional treatment are tenants of patient care and have shown to improve patient outcomes specifically with acute ischemic strokes. 
early restoration of cerebral blood flow can potentially salvage what's called ischemic penumbra, or the tissue surrounding a core area of infarction. This tissue is reversibly dysfunctional and can be salvaged with revascularization and cerebral perfusion. So you have this magic window where either blood flow is returned to its normal state and the tissue's functional status returns to normal, or blood flow is not restored and the tissue becomes infarcted, furthering the long-term impacts of the stroke. That's where our clot busters or thrombolytics come in. The first we'll discuss is Altaplace. Altaplace was approved back in 1987 for the treatment of myocardial infarction, followed by the approval for the treatment of acute ischemic strokes in 96, and lastly for the treatment of acute massive pulmonary embolism in 2002. Altaplace is a serine protease which binds to fibrin within a thrombus and thus converts the enclosed plasminogen to plasmin. This process of conversion from plasminogen to plasmin initiates local fibrinolysis and dissolution of the offending clot, which provides the restoration of the blood flow, which these patients so desperately need. James, it sounds like you've been following this for a while. What can you tell us about the trials? In regards to Altaplace, the onus was on investigators looking at the NINS trial, the ECAS-3 trial, to really demonstrate that Altaplace was effective with a reasonable safety margin. It hasn't always been smooth sailing in regards to the Altaplace literature. You all did a fantastic job of covering that past literature in a previous episode you recorded back in July of 2021 that I would urge listeners to go back and check out if they haven't heard it already, covering the evidence behind thrombolytic use for ischemic stroke. We have that linked in the show notes also. Lucky for us, Altaplace is now considered the standard of care when it comes to management of acute ischemic stroke that presents within a four and a half hour window from the patient's last known well. For Tenecteplace, really the burden of proof isn't in demonstrating efficacy and safety of thrombolytic in acute ischemic stroke. The hard work is done. It's about showing that compared to Altaplace, it works just as well, maybe works better, and it's just as safe, maybe it's safer. Why are we still talking about safety with thrombolytic use? First of all, it's a high-risk drug. The main issue with it is hemorrhage, and intracranial hemorrhage in itself is something that we can't very easily manage. There's not a lot we can do. There was a study that was published last year by Noxex and colleagues. The study was titled Identifying Errors in Safety Considerations in Patients Undergoing Thrombolysis for Acute Ischemic Stroke. What they found was that errors are still fairly common with thrombolytic use and that most common was errors in calculations that resulted in overdosing and that more importantly, these errors were associated with greater hemorrhagic conversion. So errors that had real consequences for patients and there's still room for us to optimize delivery of this life-saving therapy. So where does Tenecteplace fit into the discussion? Since its approval by the FDA, Altaplace has been the standard of care. Guidelines have recommended the use of Altaplace within three hours of symptom onset or last known well in adults. With the most recent guideline update in 2019, there appeared a couple more recommendations concerning alternative fibrinolytics. One recommendation quoted as, it may be reasonable to choose Tenecteplace single IV bolus of 0.25 mg per kg, max of 25 milligrams over IV Altaplace in patients without contraindications for IV fibrinolysis who are also eligible to undergo mechanical thrombectomy. Another little bit weirder worded, Tenecteplace administered as a 0.4 mg per kg single IV bolus has not been proven to be superior or non-inferior to Altaplace, but might be considered as an alternative to Altaplace in patients with minor neurological impairment and no major intracranial occlusion. 
it'll become more clear why the wording is as such when we start talking more about the studies behind Tenecteplase. But this marks an important change in the guidelines and recommendations regarding fibrinolysis. A lot of people out there involved with the care and management of ischemic stroke patients are probably curious, what is all this about? Where did this come from? Kyle, what should our clinicians be looking for in terms of differences with tenecteplase and alteplase? The most notable difference of tenecteplase from alteplase is its increased half-life and slower plasma clearance. This allows for a single bolus administration versus an initial bolus of 10% of the dose, followed by a one-hour infusion of the remaining 90%, which is required with alteplase. In effect, with tenecteplase, it's a single bolus dose over 5 to 10 seconds versus a bolus dose plus a one-hour infusion with alteplase. In a disease state where time is of the essence, that difference between the dosing and its practical administration is very significant and very useful in the field with tenecteplase. Additionally, the enhanced fibrin specificity of tenecteplase and its greater resistance to plasminogen activator inhibitor 1 provides faster thrombolysis compared with alteplase. Again, quicker onset, quicker administration. Tenecteplase is essentially a modified form of human tissue plasminogen activator that binds to fibrin and converts plasminogen to plasmin. Its differing pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics as compared to alteplase are due to three notable mutations in its structure. Diving into a little bit of its approval process, it was approved by the FDA in 2000 for the reduction of mortality associated with acute myocardial infarction. Treatment with tenecteplase for acute ischemic stroke is technically an off-label indication. However, the literature does support its use and is continuing to be published. So we're seeing some potential practical advantages of tenecteplase. What do the studies tell us? For just a brief review of the literature surrounding tenecteplase, the majority of it is focused on large vessel occlusions. The frequency of large vessel occlusions in acute ischemic stroke cases has been estimated between 13% to 52% in various studies using various definitions. The overall incidence of LVO is important to understand as it is an independent predictor of unfavorable outcomes in acute ischemic stroke. The majority of the data available for tenecteplase surrounds large vessel occlusion However, as it's an independent risk factor for worse outcomes, we can likely extrapolate that if tenecteplase is effective for LVO, it's going to be as effective for non-large vessel occlusion as well. I'll list off just a few trials here that I think are potentially important for review and are discussed within our expert panel write-up. The first being Extend TNK. We have a test, Australian TNK, as well as a meta-analysis of NIHSS outcomes. And probably most importantly is NORTEST. Without getting into too much detail, these studies show that tenecteplase is likely better than alteplase in regards to recanalization and reperfusion, as well as our 48 to 72-hour NIHSS scores. And these studies also show that tenecteplase is comparable to alteplase in mortality of these patients with no increased bleeding. In conclusion, there are heterogeneity in study designs between these studies with inclusions of patients undergoing mechanical thrombectomy, variability in dosing used, severity of stroke at baseline, and definitions for LVO. 
However, as a whole, this literature, as it is available now, provides enough evidence to move forward with tenecteplase for use in acute ischemic strokes. James, you have some experience in this space. How do you go about making the switch between agents? You have to be very deliberate about how you engage clinicians and neurologists specifically on this. It's not recommended over all to place. When it comes to engaging physicians on the data behind tenecteplase, it's an uphill battle. The guidelines still recommend clearly IV alteplase for stroke within three hours, within three to four and a half hour window as well. And then the recommendations that I spoke to earlier regarding tenecteplase, 0.25 mg per kg bolus, it recommends that over alteplase in patients that have a large vessel occlusion. That's interesting. However, in my personal experience and discussions with neurologists, I don't feel like they really grasped that and said, wow, it's saying over alteplase. We had to get into the literature and we had to show them, here's the data. And it actually looks to be better when it comes to reperfusion rates. More importantly, in this area of reproducibility being such a concern with clinical trials, one of the major strengths of these Extend IA, T and K trials are part one and part two is that there's a reproduction of outcomes. Extend IA compared to Extend IA, T and K part one showed that they achieved roughly the same percentage of reperfusion or significant reperfusion with alteplase in both of those studies around 10%. And that tenecteplase doubled their rate of serious reperfusion in that trial. And then that was reproduced from part one to part two. That's very powerful. Not only are they seeing a statistically significant and a clinically meaningful difference in outcomes, but they're also able to say, we've reproduced it. We've shown you now multiple times that alteplase will achieve it roughly 10% of the time. And that tenecteplase can achieve this roughly twice that. NORTEST, you have this very strange recommendation that feels like it has to specifically say it's not been proven to be superior or non-inferior to alteplase, and it recommends a different dose. I could see now clinicians looking at this and going, well, I don't even know what to do with this now. So now I've got to delineate very rapidly what I'm dealing with is this large vessel occlusion, is it not? NORTEST used a higher dose, and they designed a superiority trial. Even though if you look at the outcomes in that trial and see that they didn't see any significant differences in terms of efficacy and safety, because it's a superiority design, it's not designed to look and determine non-inferiority. They're left with basically saying it's not superior to alteplase. That's why we have that guideline recommendation. Extend IA TNK Part 2, very helpful study to decipher what do we do with dosing in this arena with tenecteplase. Part two looked at 0.25 mg per kg versus 0.4 mg per kg. And the thought behind that is very simply, large vessel occlusion, we're already coming into this assuming that because of the pharmacology of tenecteplase, it's longer half-life, it's higher specificity for fibrin and its resistance to break down by endogenous inactivators, that it should work better for large vessel occlusions and maybe a bigger dose is better. So 0.25 versus 0.4. And what they found was, no, outcomes were roughly the same in terms of percentage of significant reperfusion, in terms of incidence of bleeding. In these very large strokes, something that we've struggled treating in the past, large vessel occlusions, we already know alteplase is notoriously not very effective in that arena with low percentages of reperfusion with alteplase therapy alone. 
bigger doses didn't mean better. And so we have a greater degree of safety with a 0.25 mg per kg dose, knowing that it's going to be roughly as efficacious as that higher dose. These are the things that you really have to get into because you read these guideline recommendations. And because this is off-label use, it's a high-risk medication. People are very nervous about it, understandably. And they've got to be able to speak to that data and they've really got to not only read it, they have to engage it. They have to really digest these points because they have to be able to speak to it and they have to be confident what they're doing. The greatest area of discomfort that I've seen with providers is that they simply don't know the data. They're like, hold up, this is a dangerous treatment that we're doing. Getting them to come back to the literature, I think, helps make them feel more secure in the decision, more confident in the decision to make this change. For us, first and foremost was putting this data into an easily digestible format and getting it in front of as many physicians, stroke physicians, people touching the patient as possible so that they understand that all of the studies with tenecteplase are saying the same thing. It is at least as efficacious as alteplase. It is at least as safe. And then when it comes to large vessel occlusions, it might even be more efficacious. Another aspect of preparing people for a large-scale changeover like this is how do you package your thrombolytic for stroke? Fortunately, it wasn't a big sea change for us at St. Louis University Hospital. We already utilized stroke kits. We put everything into a single box. They would go to their automated dispensing cabinet, pull out a kit, and it would have the thrombolytic in it. It would have PRN blood pressure medications, hydralazine, labetalol. It would have everything they needed to prepare the dose, syringes, tubing, because again, we're talking about alteplase, had dosing instructions, et cetera. And we were able to convert that to meet our need with tenecteplase. So we came up with the sheet with dosing instructions. We provided a sheet that broke down reconstitution instructions. We had to address the package labeling of tenecteplase. The package labeling of tenecteplase says specifically on it for myocardial infarction. That could be problematic. Inside, when you open the box, it's got dosing instructions for MI, which is weight-based and would potentially lead to patients receiving a lot more tenecteplase than we desire in stroke. So how do we address that? We still keep a tenecteplase in our trauma automated dispensing cabinet down in the emergency department, specifically for MI. And then for the tenecteplase that's being placed in stroke kits, we've created some labeling that actually goes over the dosing in the tenecteplase box that says this dosing is what you use for ischemic stroke. We took it even further with the automated dispensing cabinet machine. So if you go to the machine, you type in tenecteplase, it's going to pop up an alert. If you try to just pull a tenecteplase box, it's going to say this tenecteplase is for MI. If you're meaning to use this for stroke, you need to pull the stroke kit. Just trying to think about all the different angles in which the dosing could become problematic. Adding to that, you need to incorporate your IT personnel and your EMR personnel into discussion and planning. So coming to my pharmacy IT and saying, we need to change some things in the automated dispensing cabinet and to make this very clear, this is tenecteplase for MI. This is your stroke tenecteplase. Coordinating with EHR to get stroke order sets updated to make sure that the tenecteplase order within that order set function correctly and that the order set goes live in a timely and efficient manner because this is a long, slow process and you're building people up over months to the point of this is the day we go live. And you want to make sure that that goes as smoothly as possible because people already are on edge dealing with a new high-risk medication. Optimizing communication with stakeholders in the lead up to changeover. 
how did we do that? We created a living Q&A document prior to the rollout, and we had weekly meetings, sometimes twice a week meetings between stakeholders at different hospitals within our region and discussed questions that had arisen and how would we respond to those questions putting it into a Q&A that we really refined our answers and our directions to providers. And then we're able to, in the days before the true go live, finalize that document and then get that into the hands of everybody so that one, they knew that people were engaging their questions, their questions had been heard, and then two, that they had very clear instructions and answers. Those are some great suggestions for helping out with organizations that are considering the switch. I can appreciate the challenges with your clinicians keeping up with the literature. We actually did a podcast about that. So I'd refer the listeners back to that. And we will definitely make sure that we link in the show notes to all of the trials that you've discussed. We finished our discussion in part two of this series, where we'll dive into more about the medication safety implications of treating acute ischemic stroke and learn about Vizient's expert panel on the topic. Thank you to both of our guests for today's discussion. And listeners, please join us for the rest of the story next time. And to our listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening.